So <clears throat> for uh, tonight's reflections, <clears throat> um, I liked the, the theme last night, uh, yesterday afternoon, Alex's talk about wisdom and love. And in some ways, my talk is about the same thing in a different way. It is about wisdom and love. I mean, we, that's what we teach. Everything we talk about is wisdom and love. It's just different aspects of it. But then I came up with a different title. So, so maybe the title is, Why Are We Here? What Are We Doing? And What's Love Got to Do With It? With, with a nod to Tina Turner, this amazing performer, artist, who, by the way, I learned today from Wikipedia, she's a Buddhist. Who knew? Who knew? Anyway, what's love got to do with it? So, so part of what I'd like to cover today in, in, in conversation with you is um, basically clarify what and how, and um, and also... As you've noticed today, as you've noticed throughout the retreat, that we are trying to teach this retreat in a secular way, or perhaps I, I prefer the word accessible, with accessible language. Um, and, and sometimes we go through contortions not to use Buddhist language that we're used to, but use accessible language that's not code word. And, and also, as Diana said in the first evening, um, to give homage, to honor the Buddhist roots that these teachings obviously come from. You know, we're not, of course, of course, we're at the Buddhist center, hello. Um, and, and also, multiple folks today during the meetings um, made an explicit, uh, um, expressed an explicit wish to, to, to um, honor, to, to pay homage, really mention these roots a little more so that aspect for them is satisfied. So, so, um, so in this talk, I am going to try to serve that a little bit and, and explain the terminology if I ever use any, any Buddhist term. So, so bear with me. Um, but in general, it, it will continue to be, because in a way, um, this is about life. This is about being human. It's about, it's, it's about, the universe, the universality of being human and this mind and heart, and no particular viewpoint and not particular, no particular people have hegemony over just observing what happens in your mind and heart. Though there are amazing um, tools and knowledge that this culture, this particular culture and study, has made available to the rest of the world to really bow to that and honor that. So as a way to start with, why are we here? Um, I want to share something that I actually, um, it, it's a TED talk I heard last week. And um, it's by Anne Lamott, the celebrated writer. And um, the title of it is uh, 12 Truths I Learned from Life and Writing. And she wrote this, she said, just before she turned 61. And I will read not the entire talk transcript, but excerpts of it. And I think it's relevant to why we're here. Why are we here? What are we doing here? And there's a lot of humor in it, so take it with a grain of salt. And 
And it points to something. It really points to these universal truths, whether you call them um, humanistic, Buddhist, whatever you call them. These are universal truths. That's why, that's why we're here. So these are the, an excerpt of the 12 truths according to Anne Lamott. And number one is a big one. So she says, number one, the first and truest thing is that all truth is a paradox. Life is both a precious, unfathomably beautiful gift, and it's impossible here. On the incarnation side of, on incarnational side of things, it's been a very bad match for those of us who were born extremely sensitive. It's so hard and weird that we sometimes wonder if we're being punked. It's filled simultaneously with heartbreaking sweetness and beauty, desperate poverty, floods and babies and acne and Mozart all swirled together. I don't think it's an ideal system. <laughs> so that's number one. Remember number one. She's going to refer back to it. Number two, almost everything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes. including you. Guess what? You're being unplugged for six days. You're being unplugged. Number three, there's almost nothing outside of you that will help you in any kind of lasting way, unless you're waiting for an organ. You can't buy, achieve, or date serenity and peace of mind. This is the most horrible truth, and I so resent it. <laughs> but it's an inside job, and we can't arrange peace or lasting improvement for the people we love most in the world. They have to find their own ways, their own answers. It's an inside job. We know that, right? That's why we're here, because we know you can't buy it, you can't date it, you can't formulate it, you can't take a pill for happiness and peace. It's an inside job. That's why we're here. She continues, for those who have children or people they care about, you can't run alongside your grown children with sunscreen and chapstick on their hero's journey. <laughs> you have to release them. It's disrespectful not to. And if it's someone else's problem, you probably don't have the answer anyway. Number four, this is a fun one. Everyone is screwed up, broken, clingy, and scared, even the people who seem to have it most together. They are much more, they're much more like you than you would believe. So try not to compare your insides to other people's outsides. It will only make you worse than you already are. <laughs> and, and, with this one, with number four, what I like about number four is, is um, you know, on a meditation retreat, we're sitting like, oh, I'm the only one whose mind is going all over. Look at all the people. They're just, <laughs> you know, they're serenely, they're in, you know, they've achieved peace, ultimate peace, enlightenment, whatever it is. And here, I'm the, I'm the only one struggling. I'm the only one. Has anyone thought about that? Has, has, has it come up? Yeah, show has. Has anyone thought? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and guess what? We're all human. We're all human. This is the human condition. 
It's hard here. As she says, I love how she says, it's impossible here. It is impossible here sometimes. It just is. It's the human condition. We are in the same boat, all of us, every single one of us. And that's what opens the heart to compassion for ourselves and for others. We all suffer in different ways. We all have difficulty. Anyone not have stress in their lives? Anyone? Anyone? Not experience stress, difficulty at all? Of course not. I mean, don't be shy. Please raise your hand if that's you. I would really like to meet you and have a nice chat with you. Please. Anyone? Please? No? Darn it. <laughs> it's, that's the human condition. It's all of us. That's why we're here. It's an inside job. It's an inside job. She continues, also, you can't save, fix, or rescue any of them or get anyone sober. While fixing and saving and trying to rescue is futile, radical self-care is quantum, and it radiates out from you into the atmosphere like a little fresh air. It's a huge gift to the world. When people respond by saying, well, isn't she full of herself? Just smile obliquely like Mona Lisa and make both of you a nice cup of tea. Be full of affection for being full of affection for one's goofy, self-centered, cranky, annoying self is home. It's where world peace begins. And that is loving kindness that we've been offering. I'll talk more about love, but that's... She's, she nailed it. It's, it's like it fills the atmosphere. It's like fresh air. It's a gift to others when you have love for yourself. It pours out. It's where world peace begins by caring for yourself, by loving yourself. I'm going to skip a bunch of them and go to number eight. Families. Families are hard, 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 no matter how cherished and astonishing they may also be. Again, see number one. <laughs> At family gatherings where you suddenly feel homicidal or suicidal, remember that in all cases, it's a miracle that any of us, especially, were conceived and born. Earth is forgiveness school. It begins with forgiving yourself. And then you might as well start at the dinner table. That way you can do this work in comfortable pants. <laughs> it is that. It is a miracle that, that any of us were conceived. Einstein says there are two ways to live. One way is as if nothing is a miracle, and another is as if everything is a miracle, and everything is a miracle. Being here, having these bodies that, that work. I don't know how my body, you know, when, when I eat the food, I can't tell it to digest. It just does its own thing, right? Or when I get a cut, it's amazing. It heals itself. I, I wouldn't know how to do that. It just, it's nature. This, it's, it's a miracle. This, this thing, this body, this mind is a miracle. It's a complete miracle. It's amazing.
And Lamotte continues. When William Blake said that we are all that that we are here to learn to endure the beams of love, he knew that your family would be an intimate part of this, even as you want to run screaming for your cute little life. But I promise you're up to it. You can do it, Cinderella. You can do it, and you will be amazed. Do you know the first thing that God says to Moses? He says, take off your shoes, because this is holy ground, all evidence to the contrary. It's hard to believe, but it's the truest thing I know. When you're a little bit older, like my tiny personal self, and realize that death is as sacred as birth. Ram Dass said, when all is said and done, we're really just all walking each other home. We're just all walking each other home. Home. I so appreciate the various themes that she talks about. That, yeah, life is beautiful, precious, unfathomably beautiful, and it is impossible here. That almost everything will work again if you unplug it, including yourself. Aren't you glad? I mean, well, you may not be every moment of the day, but I hope you may be glad by the end of the retreat that it, this retreat that you unplugged yourself for a few days and gave up your technology and just really unplugged yourself for a few days to sit, to sit with this humanity, with this blob of humanity right here on this cushion, with this miracle of humanity that feels and thinks and suffers and loves and and has pains, has joys, has sorrows, has dreams, etc., etc. And that it is an inside job. It is an inside job. Peace is is an inside job. No one can do it for you. And radical self-care is important. Love. Forgiving yourself. So peace, ease, freedom. This this inside job, it doesn't happen overnight. It does not happen overnight. It doesn't happen when you just come on a meditation retreat and sit on the cushion. It's hard work in some ways. It is hard work. It takes so much courage to be here, to be alone with yourself, to not be distracted, to just be, to be with this miracle of humanity. And it's a gradual cultivation. It's gradual. It's a gradual cultivation. And it's a cultivation. It happens little by little by little. And in that way of happening, opening up little by little, I want to frame a little what it is that we're doing here. That's the part of the talk that I said, well, what are we doing here? What is this all about? So... But the gradual cultivation and the way we're giving the instructions every morning, as you've noticed, the more the instructions are changing every morning, right? It's different. Little by little, we're opening up more and more and more. Okay, so I want to kind of give you a sense of where we are, where we're going, what's kind of the big picture, what's all this about. So for this practice, we start by calming the mind, 
by settling the mind, by just calming the mind. And for that, we started with offering, okay, bring, bring your attention to your breathing, one breath at a time. If breathing doesn't work sound, just calm the mind like a lullaby, calm the mind, calm the puppy, calm the puppy, calm the puppy, right? That's the first step. That's the first step. But we don't end there. That's the first, okay, why is that the first step? Okay, that is the first step because if the mind isn't calm, if it's going all over the place, it can't really see clearly. It's like having binoculars. You want to look through and the hands are just shaking. Okay, wait, 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 wait. First, like stabilize the hand, right? Put it somewhere. And then you can look through and then you can see your mind and you can see your body. You can see what's happening. But before you do that, it's going to shake all over the place. So the first set of instructions is just to stabilize the mind. That's the beginning instruction, okay? And some like to use the word concentration, concentrating the mind. It's a word that we use, I use, even though I don't like the word. And I'm going to tell you why. Because the actual word for this part of the practice, and I'm going to give you actually now the Pali word, the root, paying homage to that. The word is actually samatha, and that translates best to calming the mind calming and settling the mind. That's the best translation in my mind, in, in actually various uh, scholars too. Concentration can be a translation too, except that in the English language, concentration conjures up this, uh, concentrate, like make the uh, burrowed frow and really work hard and like I need to concentrate. And it becomes heady. It's not a heady endeavor. It's calming the mind. It's calming. It's, it's actually, it's as much work in the body as it is in the mind. It's embodied mind. When the, as we've heard us mention, when the body gets settled, when the body gets really calm and settled, then the mind can also settle. In fact, mindfulness also is a funky translation. It's more like bodyfulness. You know, when we say pay attention to your breath, it's not think about your breath. It's feel your breath, feel your breath, feel, feel, drop into the body, drop into the body, drop into the body. It's bodyfulness to really settle the mind. You use the body because the body is, is a tether. I don't know if you guys have ever seen, you know, these big pop-up dolls. There are these pop-up dolls where they have a lot of sand on the bottom, right? And if, if they get knocked over, they stand up again, right? Why do they stand up? Because they have a lot of heavy sand on the bottom, bodyfulness. Whereas if all the sand was on the top, it would topple over. So that's like you. If all of your attention is in your head, in your thoughts, you get toppled over all the time. But with body, when the awareness is rooted in the body, in the breath, body, and sounds too, kind of spacious feeling, then, oh, there's that stability. Then the mind is more stable, can be much more stable, much more stable. And that stability is the first step, the binoculars, when the mind is stable, oh, now we can start looking through. 
Now we can start to examine what is happening, what is coming up, what is showing up in this mind-body. So calming the mind, settling the mind, stabilizing the mind. Again, I will say concentration, but realize it's not uh, It's calming, stabilizing the mind. So that's the first step, okay? Are we clear about that before I move on to the next steps? Okay, so the first step, again, I repeat, is stabilizing the mind, calming the mind, so that the mind can see more clearly, is stable to see instead of binoculars just you know jumping all over the place, right? You can't see that way. Okay. So when the mind becomes more stable and settled, oh then it can start to see. And then what do we do? Then we start to open up more and more and more to all that arises in this fear of experience. Well, what is that? Okay. Well, we started with emotions. We include we include emotions, like, oh, because emotions, yeah, they come up a lot, you know, there's, there's, but, well, we start with body sensations, other body sensations, pain, yesterday, right, so body sensations, if they're, you know, pleasant, when they're unpleasant, we have the label pain for them, and Diana talked about that a lot, so we open up to body sensations, and how we feel about them, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, we open up to that, we include that, Okay, can I be with this too? Can I be with this sensation? Can I be with the unpleasantness? See, now the binoculars are opening up. They're including more, okay? Then we open up more. This morning with emotions. Oh yeah, strong emotions. Can I be with this? Can I be with this sadness? Can this be here too? Can, can there be space for sadness to be here? And not overwhelm the show, not, not give it the reins. Can it be here and be held in the spacious, in the stable mind? Or can anxiety, oh yeah, there's anxiety. Can anxiety be here without me wanting to jump out and leave the room? Can anxiety be here and give it space like a wild horse? Anxiety, I usually liken it to a wild horse. If you try to make it in, hold it in a small pen Oh, it gets angry. Not, not, not a good situation. But if you give it a wide, wide field to run around in and give it a lot of space because the mind is calm. Like, oh yeah, you can run around. It's okay. Ah, then it doesn't feel so trapped anymore. It's, it's, it's got space. It's okay. It's cool. There's space. There's space. Anxiety, you can be here too. Wild horse, I see you. I love you. You can be here. It's cool. Right? So... Opening up to more, opening up to more. Then there is thoughts. We'll talk about thoughts tomorrow morning. So the, the goal of this practice is not to stop thinking. It's not to have an empty, clear mind. The point is not to get preoccupied, not to be completely wrapped up and entangled in our thinking. Recognizing that thinking is happening, thoughts come and go, but not being tangled in it. And I'm going to reserve, by the way, I'll talk a lot more about thoughts tomorrow, so I won't say so much about them today, but just to tell you the, where we're going, okay? We'll keep opening up more to allow everything that arises and passes away. Everything can be included. 
what the stable mind can hold. And when it gets a little out of balance, whoa, okay, too much, too much of this. Okay, then we go back to the anchor. Okay, stabilize, stabilize, stabilize. Okay. Ah, and then when it feels too much again, oh, going to the anchor, stabilize, stabilize, stabilize. And then can open up to what's coming up with sound, okay, coming, going, emotion coming and going. Oh, so you see how that, how that works, kind of. Because the point, the point of this practice, the point of this practice, as I said, is first, I'll tell you what, it's not. It's not to have an empty mind, to have no thoughts. That could happen as a byproduct, but that's not the goal. When the mind gets calm, sometimes it doesn't want to think anymore and feels kind of peaceful and nice in that way. But that's not the goal. Also, the goal is not to bliss out in pleasant lovely, calm, spacious, blissful states. That's not the goal either. Those states can happen as spiritual goodies, we call them, on the side. They can happen. They happen. They're nice. They're very pleasant. Nothing wrong with them. But it's not, they're not the goal. It's not to be clung to. To like, oh, I want that again. Because that's not the goal either. So, Okay, now I've pulled the rug from under you. Like, okay, what is the goal? Why are we here? What, what, what is the point? Okay, the goal is, as Diana said, to be okay with everything. Everything. We extend our capacity as human beings in this way. This way to be with more and more and more and more. And gradually, nothing will scare you. Nothing will faze you. That is a taste of freedom. That is ultimate peace. That is where this train heading. There are many stops along the ways. There are many side attractions. The blissful states are the side attractions. But that is the destination. And also, what I like to bring in is refer back to the three things Diana mentioned, self-regulation, self-exploration, and self-transcendence. To me, those are the various stops of the train. You know when you get on a train, it has a final destination, right? But you can get off at various stops. Okay, so the final destination is self-transcendence. That's what this practice, that's where it's heading to. And you can call it self-transcendence, you can call it freedom, ease, ultimate peace, enlightenment, whatever you want to call it. It doesn't matter. It's a, it's a different relationship to life as a human being. It's being in the world, being completely in the world, and having all the stresses come up. It's not like you won't be affected at all. Yes, yeah, stresses will come up, but I can be with this too. It's okay. I can be with this too. It doesn't phase you. You don't have to run run away and hide. Either either literally or figuratively distract yourself. I can be with this too. I can be with this boredom. I can be with this anger. I can be with this fear. I can be with this pain. Your capacity expands more and more and more and more. You know, superhuman in a way. That's the transcendence. And it's about being real. 
It's this, this not this hypothetical idea, oh yeah, you're going to sit on the top of a mountain and you're going to bliss out. No, it's being real. Life is hard. It is impossible here. And to grow more and more capacity to be fully human, to be fully loving in the midst of it, not to be contracted in the self-view. Because when, when there is, when we are caught in something, then our vision becomes limited, very, very narrow. And when we are not caught, when fear, when anger, when all of these things, when they don't drive us, ah, there's more capacity to be there both for yourself, for, for ourselves, loving, and for the world. That's where this train is heading. And the stops along the way are important too. The stops along the way, self-regulation, Having self-regulation allows you, when there is self-regulation of emotions, etc., whatever you want to call it, rose is sweet by any any other name, self-regulation, have, have, or kept me having capacity to be with more and more, whatever you want to call it, that allows you to, to have, to get to the next stop, which is self-exploration. Ah, there is more courage to actually explore what this mind and body is. What is the pattern? To see them clear, to see the self-judgments, to see how your self-judgment mind drives you crazy. Oh, to see that. Oh, I can see that. It allows you to to get to the next stop. And then the self-exploration and the self-regulation allow you to get to the next stop, which is the self-transcendence. You need to know the self completely know the self and love the self before you can transcend it, before you can let go of it. You can't have what's called spiritual bypass. You can't just say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm cool, I've, I've got it. No. The only way is through it. As Diana said, you can't get around, go around it, go on top of it, below it, left, right. Uh, doesn't work. It's through the self is through knowing, exploring, loving, understanding the self that then we can let go of it. That's the only way. And what does it mean to let go of the self also, this letting go thing? What, what is it? Letting go, letting go. What is the letting go? So letting go. First, I actually, I'm going to share a, a quote. I'm going to bring in Ajahn Chah again, um, who was brought in last night by Alex yesterday afternoon in his talk, who is a meditation master and the teacher to Jack Hornfield, who's a founder of the space we're in, and and teacher to us, all of us, actually. So Ajahn Chah said, and just sit with this. Don't try to make sense of this. Just let it land in your body. Let just resonate this quote. Do everything with a mind that lets go. Don't accept praise or gain or anything else. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. So what is this letting go? So letting go is the opposite of hanging on, right? 
attaching like oh i want this i want this i want this so there are different ways of letting go one is having a conversation with melvin and saying yeah i'm invoking this idea of letting go in yoga by in the inhalation i suggest oh make space make room and in the exhalation let go let go to the body let go Ah, actually, let's do that. Let's get an experiential feel for it for a moment. Let's just take a breath in together. Make space and then, ah, release, let go. Ah, doesn't that feel good? Yeah, it's a release. It's a, it's a not hanging on to, it's a release. It's a softening, it's a letting go. Ah, it's a release, it's a relief. And a lot of times, you know, the mind, we, a lot of times we can't let go on our own. There's some things that's easy to let go of. You see it, it's like, oh, that makes no sense. Oh, like, of course. You see it and it just automatically, the mind lets go of it or you let go of it. But there are times that you cannot let go intentionally. You can, the mind cannot let go. It's like, oh, it's, I want to let go, but I can't. It's, Oh, 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 I, oh, I want to let go. I want to let go. But sometimes it's not possible to let go. It's the emotion, the feeling, whatever you're attached to, this dream, this hope, this, this whatever it is, this wanting. Oh, I want this to happen. I, it's, oh, and I so want to let it go because I know it's just driving me crazy to want this thing. But I can't let go. Okay. So how does one let go? How, how does letting go happen? in cases like that. So a lot of time, actually, this is again a part of understanding how this practice works, is the mind lets go on its own. It's not so much an act of will. Okay, what does that mean? When you see again and again and again and again and again, which is this practice, by the way. This practice is practice of seeing you sit with, you, you keep seeing, you keep seeing, you keep seeing. It's not the practice of trying to change, trying to make things better in a way, intentionally, because if you try that, there's a conflict that arises. In fact, it's interesting. Um, someone who uh, I had on, on a previous retreat and was practice, practicing for a while, and actually I was, was teaching, uh, mindfulness and and their response each, they had an epiphany a, a, an insight <gasps> this is not about changing this practice is not about changing things it's not about changing it to make it better it's about seeing again and again and again and it changes on its own when you keep seeing when you keep seeing again and again the mind starts to notice, you know, this makes no sense. I don't want to do this again. The mind lets go on its own. The mind realizes, oh, this is foolish. But if you try to let go, if you try to change, if you, yeah, I want to be happy now. I want to let go of this now. It becomes a conflict. And the edge of the conflict, it's, it's, it's being in conflict with yourself, being with your mind. Whereas, this practice, you see it again. With a calm mind, you keep seeing again and again and again and again. And it starts to lose its power over you. 
I'll give you an example. So there was um, years ago, a few years ago, there was a situation in my life where um, it was very difficult. There was there was something with a family member. It was very painful, very painful. And my mind would go into these angry stories, just would pick up the story like, oh, how could they do this? It just makes no sense. And just there was a lot of anger, a lot of anger. And and two things I want to share with you about this story. One is about anger, by the way. So anger, it has it has a pleasantness to it. It has a self-righteousness. There is an energy to it that we usually see. Like, I'm right, they're wrong. Like, it makes you, on the tip of it, it makes you feel good. Have you noticed that about anger? That's the seductive part of anger. Okay, yeah. The part we tend not to notice about anger is how much it hurts, how painful it is deep down inside. It's like, ugh, it's like poisoning ourselves. It's like, ugh, it's painful. A simile is that being angry at someone is like picking up a hot coal to, to throw at them. Guess who gets burned first? So, so anger has that quality that's really painful and icky and ugh, but we usually don't see it. So in this case, for me, I think I was in the seductiveness of I'm right. It's just like this is a situation and how do I do this and like how do I deal with this and like went on and on. And then my mind turned. I started to see the pain of it, and if and. It wasn't an act of will. It wasn't. I, mean, I couldn't say, hey, stop picking up the story and being angry. No, the mind picks it up, right? The mind has no shame. <laughs> if you've heard that saying, the mind does whatever it does. But when, the mind, when I started to see, when I started to see more and more and more, that, oh, this feels, oh, this feels bad. I'm, I'm hurting myself. This person is just going about their life. They're doing whatever they're doing, you know, happily. And here I am, the one that's, that's, that's in pain, suffering. And at some point, I actually remember um, my mind picked it up and then thought, no, I don't want to go there anymore. It just put it down. It just put it down. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to pick up the story and, and torture myself one more time. Just the mind decided to just let go, let go. And how did that happen? I, I didn't intentionally will it to happen. It, it was just by turning the mind to see the pain of it, the pain of it. And then, and then the mind goes, hmm, yeah, that's no fun. I don't want to do that anymore. Thank you. Let's do something else. And that's the letting go. That's the aspect of letting go. So I like to offer you. Um, we've given you some acronyms and and um, and ways to practice, and I like to offer you another one today, which I made up, and the acronym is 
G-R-A-C-E, grace. So practicing with grace. G stands for gradual cultivation. It's not overnight. Just, it's not overnight. It's gradual cultivation. But I have to admit, I've, I've uh, overloaded the G. So it also stands for gentleness. This practice only works with gentleness, not with roughness, only with gentleness. The R is also overloaded. The R stands for receive, receive, receiving. When we're doing this practice, there's an aspect of non-doing, doing. Non-doing, doing. There's an aspect of receiving. When you're breathing, if you try to breathe, you're going to mess up the, the rhythm of your breathing. Have you noticed that? It gets messed up. But if you receive the breath, just let it be as it is, like a wild animal. Just receive it. Oh, breath. Receive, receive. That. Receiving the sounds. Receiving the emotions. Receiving, receiving. It also stands for relax. Check in with your body now and then. See if your body is tight. If your forehead, especially your jaw, if they're tight, it's a sign that you're working too hard. You're putting too much effort. You're trying to concentrate. So notice, relax. That's the R. The A. A stands both for acceptance, accepting, allowing, actually, allowing, which was mentioned in rain this morning. Allowing and also arrive every moment. Keep arriving. Keep arriving. Don't expect that you're just going to, you know, be with the breath for the next 45. No, keep arriving every moment. Keep arriving. Keep arriving. It's part of this practice. Keep arriving. Have patience. Keep arriving. Have patience with yourself. C stands for continuity. Continuity is so important in this practice, on this retreat. If you wanted to boil water, if you turn it on and then turn it off, turn it on again, turn it off again, turn it on again, off again, it uh, would take a long time for it to boil, right? How about continuity? Continuity. When you get up after the end of this talk, your practice continues. When you walk out and you get your meal, just notice. It, it doesn't have to be too much energy or effort. Just notice what's happening, what's coming up in the mind, what's coming up in the body. It's simple. It's a light touch. It's a very light touch. The level of energy that it takes right now for you to know that you're hearing my voice, that is the level of energy it takes to know what is happening while it's happening. Oh, I'm eating right now. I'm tasting right now. Oh, I'm going to the bathroom right now. Oh, I'm feeling the door right now. Oh, it's hot right now. Continuity. That way, the water boils a lot faster. E stands for perhaps the most important concept of all, embodiment. It's, this is not a heady endeavor. This is not heady. It's embodied mind embodiment. It's all, this is embodied practice. Feeling, when we say see, is seeing not with the eyes, but seeing with internally, turning your gaze inward. And, and what's love got to do with it? What's love got to do with it? I'd like to read a quote from 
Jack Cornfield, as I mentioned, the co-founder of um, this, this place, Spirit Rock. He says in his book, A Path with Heart, in the stress and the complexity of our lives, we may forget our deepest intentions. But when people come to the end of their life and look back, the questions that they most often ask are not usually, how much is in my bank account? Or how many books did I write? What did I build? Or the like. If you have the privilege of being with a person who's awake at the time of his or her death, you find the questions such a person asks are very simple. Did I love well? Did I live fully? Did I learn to let go? Did I love well? Did I live fully? Did I learn to let go? Love, kindness, friendliness, gentleness, they're inherent part of this practice Joseph Goldstein, who's another teacher who brought this practice to the West to give him credit and acknowledge him also, he, uh, he says that doing wisdom practice, mindfulness without hard practices, without love in it, is like riding a bicycle that's out of air. It's a pretty rough ride. It's a pretty, it's not impossible, but it's a pretty rough ride. Not recommended. And, and we know, we know that when there is gentleness, when there is ease in the heart, this practice becomes a lot easier. Loving, loving everything that comes up. Love what arises. And there's plenty of research also. It's, it won't be a Nikki talk if at least I don't include one or two research studies. I told you my nerdy side will come out eventually. So I'd like to share a few, few studies with you because um, there are a bunch of studies about the practice of loving-kindness love and, and how, you know, how, it, promo- how it, it, it contributes to those different stops that I talked about, at diff- different stops of the train. So one of them, this is an interesting one, this is by Barbara Friedrichsen, it was mentioned also la- yesterday by Alex, and this study was was um, done where uh, subjects had seven weeks of loving-kindness meditation, the kind of meditation that we're offering in the evenings, the loving-kindness meditation. So, so groups, folks went through seven weeks of that, and there was measured, measurable significant increase in, in love, joy, contentment, gratitude, hope, interest, amusement, and awe. And these positive emotions led to personal resources and in turn increasing life satisfaction and decreasing depressive symptoms. There's another study with stress and immune response. I already know you guys all have stress in your lives. Nobody not not raised their hand saying they didn't have stress. So this is relevant to you. So this was a six-week compassion meditation study. And then at the end of it, they, um, they did a trier social stress test where they put people in a very stressful situation, 
by the way, I've gone through this kind of, I volunteered once for a study where I went through a true social stress test. It's very stressful. It's, it's well designed. <laughs> and in this, they, um, they um, measured the blood cortisol level um, and the IL-6 ELISA, as well as the b- behavioral responses through a mood survey. And surprise, surprise, I wouldn't be quoting it if, if the blood cortisol levels had not uh, been significantly different. And it turned out, this is an interesting thing about it, this study, and so many studies, by the way, that it's dose-dependent. So for this one, uh, the practitioners, if they had done the study, the compassion meditation, which is similar to loving-kindness meditation, very similar, um, three or four times per week or more, that's when the immune um, and the stress response showed up, but not if it was less. Um, there is a study, this one has actually a very small um, sample size, but it's kind of fun, so I'm just going to say it anyway. And so this was done with a group of women, and uh, this is also loving-kindness practice. Um, and they, the, the women in this practice... Um, they had significantly longer telomere length compared to age match controls. Mm-hmm. So ladies, forget about the creams, the beauty creams, you know, loving kindness practices, what's going to make you feel younger, look younger, the, biolog- the telomere being a biological marker of aging. Um, and some of the results are actually not surprising. I mean, the... It, what I love about some of the research results is that you kind of know, um, like practicing loving kindness makes you more helpful, makes you nicer. <laughs> Surprising result. But anyway, it's, it's, it's an interesting paper. I'll, I'll save that one. I wouldn't tell you what happened in that one. But uh, the one that actually um, particularly really... Um, I think out of many of these is, is perhaps the, the most significant in this day and age and this time is that um, in this study by Kang, uh, Gray, and Dovito, 2014, after six weeks of loving kindness, there was a decrease in implicit bias towards social outgroup. And this is very significant. This is basically decreasing the implicit bias we don't even know we have towards people who don't look like us. They don't dress like us. They don't think like us. The same party affiliation, same race, same gender, same sexual orientation. If this practice decreases that implicit bias, and this, I think, is profound, is really profound in our society. More studies, this one is interesting one too, that loving-kindness reduces self-criticism. Many of us have talked about self-judgment in our practice meetings. Self-judgment is, you know, people have their top 10 list of patterns that come come, come up. I've noticed as a teacher that judgmental thoughts are number one about oneself and about others. So in this practice, with Shahara Tal, 2014, it reduced self-criticism 
and therefore reduce depressive symptoms and improve self-compassion and positive emotions. Of course, right? Because it's the self-criticism. Oh, you didn't do that right. You get depressed when you have a big inner critic, right? Of course, it gets you depressed because it keeps hitting you over the head with everything you're doing right. You took too much food, you took too little food, you you ate too fast, you walked too fast, you walked too slow. Oh my goodness, of course, ouch, ouch, ouch. And it's that ouch that's the loving kindness. Oh, it's okay, it's okay, sweetie, it's okay. It's okay, I love you, it's okay. And that decreases depressive symptoms. And with this particular uh, experiment, the results were maintained three months afterwards, which again is significant. Again, there are more studies about decreasing migraines, decreasing chronic pain, but I'm running out of time. So anyway, so I'd just like to wrap up now and, and end with a poem. I'm going to ask you actually to ah, let go of the words so far and just sit in your meditation posture. And as we're sitting, I'm going to read the poem and let it wash over you. Ah, The poem is called Love After Love by Derek Walcott. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at each other's welcome. And say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored, for another who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. Sit, feast on your life. Thank you for your kind attention. Whatever was useful, let it stick around. Whatever wasn't, let go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.